0: It's April 2021, and the world is still batshit crazy. I am Anuj Rastogi, and your host on the Awoken Word podcast, and I am excited to be back after uh, a little bit of a a hiatus with uh, a new episode. Well, technically it's not really a new episode. It's the first time that you're going to be listening to this episode, but... uh, I'm almost ashamed to say that this episode was recorded just around a year ago, and for a number of different reasons, uh, I just was not able to uh, get it out there and published. And yet somehow, given the kind of crazy year that we've had and the kind of crazy planet that we live on, almost everything that we talk about in this episode is still as alive and true today. In some cases, sadly, and in other cases, interestingly, it's just as applicable today as it ever was. My guest today is the one and only Shri Paradkar, who is an author and writer with the Toronto Star. She's a very prominent columnist and definitely a person full of convictions and opinions. I actually came into contact with Shri several years ago. And we kind of fell out of touch in between, but uh, I've been following her work and her writing for quite some time. She is the recipient of the Atkinson Fellowship in Public Policy. She's also the author of Betrayed, which is uh, about her cousin's wrongful conviction in the murder of her daughter. And she's also been a journalist in Bangalore, Mumbai, Singapore, and now, of course, Toronto. Now, I've been wanting to connect with Shri for quite some time, and it's kind of ironic that it's taken me so long since having connected with her to release this, but as I mentioned, the conversation is as relevant today as it ever was. We really dive right into the deep end around race in particular, uh, race and the myth that is the Canadian project as a utopia. We deconstruct that, I think, a fair bit. We talk a lot about her journey of awakening and specifically the role that black feminism plays in that awakening for her. Early on, we definitely trade notes about our shared agreement on the fact that we all owe a significant debt to the indigenous people who have been stewards of this land and keepers of this land for so long and have allowed so many of us here over the years And we also owe a significant debt, in particular as immigrants and minorities, to the Black struggle and to everything that Black people have done to struggle and overcome that has really put us in a position that has stratified society in a certain way, that puts us in a place that I don't think we would be in had it not been for all of the sacrifices of the Black struggle. Shri also unpacks something I think that is actually quite an interesting mental model around this idea of what is the norm in the West, in, in countries like this. And she deconstructs this idea a fair bit, and I think makes a fairly compelling case on how we actually see one another within the society in which we live. We also do talk a fair bit about the discomfort around the conversations on race that white people in particular feel. And we talk a fair bit about what does that mean and how much bearing should that really have as we chart a course towards the future. Uh, We also talk a lot about being honest with ourselves and our own biases, uh, internalizing a lot of the dominant narratives of a Eurocentric worldview. And we also unpack a lot of these overarching world themes in the effect it has on us as parents and the effect in particular it has on Shri as a mother as she's raising mixed-race kids in a city like Toronto. Now, since the conversation with Shri a lot's happened in the world. This conversation actually predates the George Floyd incident and a number of other incidents that have happened since. It predates the 2020 election and Trump finally walking off into the sunset, leaving the world in all sorts of disarray. So a lot's happened in the world since, and yet every point I believe that Shri makes here is as relevant today as it ever was, particularly as a person navigating the world in an interestingly conflicted time in the middle of all sorts of challenges that are sociopolitical, that are economic, that are all heightened by COVID. And I think that this particular crisis has only exasperated and exposed a lot of the inequalities and challenges that we face as a society as a whole. And the points that Sri makes, although they were before a lot of the current events that we find ourselves living amongst right now, they're as relevant as ever. And at the end of the day, I think we come to a place where some of the mental models that she has applied to her writing, to the way that she navigates the world, to the way that she actually navigates motherhood, I think you'll find of extreme interest. And if you haven't read any of Shree's work yet, I highly encourage that you do. Her articles are critical. They don't pull punches. She's not out to make friends. She's out to make a point. She's out to portray what she believes to be a point of view on the truth that needs to be heard, and I applaud and respect her for that. Anyways, I've probably given away the whole conversation, you believe, this feels like the trailer that tells you everything that happens in the movie. I guarantee that this conversation is well worth the wait and it's well worth the listen. I believe that almost everyone listening to this is gonna walk away with food for thought. So without further ado, I finally present to you my conversation with the author, the journalist, Sri Paradkar. This podcast is my humble attempt to bring a full grain of sand of goodness rising to the beach of human experience. Inspiring. This podcast is my love letter to all of you. The Awoken Word Podcast. I'm here at the Toronto Star head office with Shri Pradgar. This is pretty cool because we first came into orbit about 10 years ago. I was trying to place it exactly. Your memory is definitely better than mine. But in a previous incarnation as the music composer and producer, uh, which I still do, but we kind of came into orbit. And uh, I've been following your work ever since, Shree. So I'm, I'm very thankful and humbled that you made time for me and for this conversation today.
1: Oh, I'm really happy to be here, yeah, happy to chat.
0: Sri, I know that you've been writing for the Star for a number of years. You're an author. You're a mother. You've been a Torontonian, a Canadian for a long time. For people that don't know you, who is Sri Pradkar? Hmm.
1: Who is Sri would be. I think. A, I hope I am a person on the journey of learning. When we met ten years ago. I would have been i was not a parent i was not canadian yet i and i was very much in the land of whiteness you know i was very i was a new canadian i thought white people had found the solutions to modernity to how to live in a more civilized way and i didn't understand how that meant that I had internalized a certain sense of inferiority. I didn't realize that. So since then, I'm on a journey of awakening. And I think all of us are at different points of that journey. And in many ways, I was rescued by black feminism. It helped me understand who I was in the racial and social landscape in Toronto. And eventually, it helped me realize who I was and my oppressor identity in India, mm-hmm. um, which is where I come from. So in so many ways, black feminism has rescued me from my addled uh, thinking and clarified much of the world around me.
0: It's funny because I noticed your Twitter bio, it reads something, and I'm paraphrasing, but something along the lines of indebted to Aboriginal lands and, and black feminism. And As a journalist, as a writer, obviously every word in there is very specific there for intent. And the fact that you use the word indebted, it resonated with me because I find as the world, I think, has gotten more visibly polarized. I don't know if it's actually more polarized than it's ever been, but with the bombardment of social media and a constant news cycle and whatnot, it feels like we're more at odds. But it feels like everything has just been reduced to black and white, like a simple binary. There's very little room for nuance in between. There's very little time for it. And, and the reason I bring that up around the word indebted, one thing I don't feel that immigrant communities in particular in the West really realize, whether it's Canada or the U.S. or Western Europe, as immigrants, particularly people who are coming from backgrounds of visible minorities, we owe, first of all, like a huge debt to you know the Aboriginal people who have allowed us to stay here. Our ancestors, your ancestors, my ancestors weren't necessarily the propagators of everything that um, perpetrated all of those atrocities. But we're here now, standing on the backs of it. So we're indebted for that. But we're also indebted for every single racial struggle that's happened in the West. It's basically happened on the backs of black people. Had they not fought every fight decades earlier, we wouldn't be somewhere in the middle of that pecking order in society. And so I find it kind of shameful that we turn a blind eye when one community on which we're kind of standing is constantly struggling, and I know this is a big topic in your writing, and we don't really recognize that. And we think that at one point we're a victim, which we may be in a certain context, but then we're also the perpetrators of it, right? Whether it's the South Asian community doing it or any other community. So when you put indebted in there, I, I thought this is not just a black and white conversation.
1: No, it's not. Um, And I think it's really, really important, uh, some of the things you mentioned about the role of South Asians, the role of brown people. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are used at once to keep black people in their place as well. And we are used as that model minority to Mm -hmm. show that, look, if these people can do it, then why can't those? And I just want to untangle those threads a little bit. Uh, that first, in, in Canada, first of all, we say Indigenous, uh, right? right? Uh, and in Australia, they say it's Aboriginal. Aboriginal. Yeah. And then among Indigenous, again, we you know the non-Indigenous perspective is to sort of make it into a, a monolith, right? And which it is not. You know, the First Nations, Métis, Inuit might be the better way to say it. And among, uh, even among First Nations, there are hundreds, right? Uh, right. And I think people who come from other countries such as, uh, such as India, we should have a better understanding of what that means, simply because India is not a monolith. And you know we, we are like Europe, except that we are in one nation and we have our own languages, we have our own customs, we have our own cultures. Uh, but so much of the Indian project since nineteen forty seven has been about assimilation mm-hmm. into trying to make us into this one, uh, which is uh, you know, a capitalist-led assimilation where people are being asked to give up their own cultures, whether it's Assam, whether it's Kashmir, whether right. it's uh, Tamil Nadu. So that's in India and the same thing happening here. So I, I'm, I'm, I would guarantee that like me, most immigrants who come here are not thinking about the indigenous ways of life. Right. And they're not, they, like me, I think most immigrants come here thinking indigenous people were some people who lived in the past. Right. Uh, what shocks me is that people who have settled here for generations also think that while there are indigenous people who are moving among us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not surprising to me that outsiders may not know as much, but it is super surprising to me that uh, white settlers here don't know better and that second generation and third generation Canadians don't know right. better, which to me shows how deeply ignorant we have been deliberately kept mm-hmm. of the Canadian project of erasure, of the erasure of the first peoples on this land. So there is a definite indebtedness to these people who don't necessarily, I know they all have different cultures, but they don't have the idea of private ownership and borders. Right. And I know people like to say, oh, they fought among themselves. And, you know, this was just normal yeah, in didn't? those days, yeah, but yeah. they weren't, there was not no genocide, right. Yes, there were, you know, there may, they may have been some warfare, but there was also treaties and there was also respect. And there was the sense of guardianship of the land, mm-hmm. which, Uh, You know, European settlers by hook, but often by crook, created these treaties that they didn't honor at all. And so now the indigenous people are reduced to very small swaths of land, but they are the ones that have kept this land sustainable for all this time. Right. And we owe a debt to them for sharing this land. To date, I have never heard one indigenous activist from any nation or Inuit or Métis say, go back to where you've come right. from. Yeah. It, they've never said it. But I think that is the European settler fear because European settlers have definite ideas of we'll shut the door behind us. We will come and mm. rob this place. We will take what we want, but we'll shut the door behind and decide who else gets to come here. And if we don't like who comes here, then we get to tell you to go back where you are.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that seems to be the fear among settlers, that that's what they're going to be asked to do. Right. When in fact nobody ever has asked that.
0: I, I like that you term it the Canadian project. I was born and raised. I grew up here. I grew up in Edmonton, then I moved to Toronto. But if I think about even my own perspectives towards just the Indigenous nations, I mean, I'm reasonably well-read, but even then I'm incredibly ignorant. You know, the more I the more I learn, the more I realize like how much I just don't know and, and appreciate and about this. And we're
1: all this. there. they are all like that.
0: Yeah. yeah and and but. I think about when, when someone sort of targets a comment towards someone who's South Asian about how maybe everybody eats butter chicken or everybody listens to Bhangra music or whatever it might be, very quickly we start to explain the nuance, right? Like there's South India, there's North India, there's the West, there's different dialects, there's all of this sort of stuff. So we very quickly start to fight against being lumped as a monolith, as you put it. But At the same time, I find we're also so intellectually lazy that when we look at China, which is also not a monolithic culture, right? It's got so many people spread across a very wide swath of land with so many different cultures, sets of traditions, their own dialects. People just talk about China as China, as this monolithic thing. They talk about Africa in the same way. Africa is this massive continent with all these different cultures, more genetic diversity within Africa than, you know, beyond it, if I'm not mistaken and yet we still refer to it as monoliths. And I, I wonder if that's just, is just intellectual laziness or if there's actually a specific focus that we've had in writing history in a certain way. We only see nuance when it comes to European history. We don't tend to see a lot of that nuance everywhere else. Like, why do you think that is?
1: Mm-hmm. All great questions. I'd, I'd suggest we should unpack who we are. When you say we don't, who is we? Sure. And in this society, that we refers to white people. You may think you're part of that we. I may think I, and, and by rights and by law, I have a i have a right to believe I'm part of that we. But I'm part of that we only if I buy into the concept of whiteness. And by whiteness, I don't mean white people are bad. I'm not saying white individuals are racist mm-hmm. uh, Ku Klux Klaners. Not at all what I'm saying. White people themselves may not be aware of this hierarchy, but whiteness is the hierarchy. By that I mean, who's the center of society that we decide, we, as in whiteness has decided, Mm -hmm. is the norm. Who is the norm? And the norm is a healthy, able-bodied, heterosexual, white male who is cisgender. Mm -hmm. And that's the norm and how close are you to that norm the closest to that norm is healthy uh, cisgender heterosexual white woman and then after that comes you know brown people you know and then at the very periphery of all of that is black and none of this is linear you know your sure, class yeah. your culture your education your you know language abilities how you speak english what accent you use all of those things start to intersect but so it's all based on how far you are from that center of that white cisgender male, able-bodied male. And so that is the we that decides what the culture is. That is the we that decides whether something is right or wrong or deviant, right? If, if you are queer, then if you're white queer, you, chances are you'll have a higher, higher access or less, less discrimination than if you're a black trans person. Mm -hmm. Right. And so even within those limits, so that we is really important. And it's if we understand that whiteness is that center, then we understand that this whole due to colonization and globalization, the world seems to be viewed through a Eurocentric lens. Mm -hmm. And all our education is through that Eurocentric lens. And so I like I said earlier, I thought I, I was the one catching up with knowledge about indigeneity only to realize that, no, I'm actually, I might know a little bit more because I'm interested and it's part of my job than settlers here because nobody ever studied that in schools here.
0: Right,
1: Right. and so all greatness, if you go by curriculum, all greatness, human rights, enlightenment itself came from Europe. And the enlightenment era is a European term. It's not global enlightenment. Different civilizations have had different eras of enlightenment. But when we say the Enlightenment era, we simply mean European. And that's considered the norm. And right. so, uh, so do we view, you know, is nuance allowed to us? Among us, yes. But in this society, no. That nuance is allowed to who is considered the norm, which is white person. If you have crime, then it's that white individual, look at this bad thing that sure, happened, yeah, that yeah. white individual that made him commit that crime.
0: Race is not a factor in the in evaluation that of all. that situation. Is,
1: you know, you're an ISIS terrorist, that's it. It's your Islamicness that made you a terrorist. If you're covering a case, as I have, uh, of a woman who is abused in an in arranged marriage, the arranged marriage is seen as the reason mm-hmm. for that domestic violence, whereas the arranged marriage has nothing to do with it but it is seen as forced marriage. And, and so the culture is the culprit. Whereas mm. in white people, the individual circumstances the culprit.
0: See, everything that you said, I am conflicted by, and I'm conflicted for this reason. I think what you've described at a macroscopic level in terms of looking at white, heterosexual, cisgendered, all the qualifiers you can throw there as being the center of shaping the narrative or the lens at which we look at things.
1: Of establishing the norm.
0: Uh, and establishing the norms. Yeah. I uh, I agree with fully. The conflict becomes, this conversation is very uncomfortable for someone white. And I can say that with absolute certainty, only because I've been in this conversation so many times, Even very recently, at uh, at the school that my kids go to, there was uh, an anti-bullying, anti-racism, full day of programming for the students, and then they had a thing for the the parents in the evening. You know, and without going into gory detail, at the end of it, it really was mostly just an anti-bullying thing, which in and of itself is an important concern that we need to address. There really should be no place for bullying. My personal view of racism is it's related. They, they overlap in a Venn diagram, but it is very much a separate beast, and especially when it's directed towards black people. And so there's a, a student that's been going through things that still quite frankly shocked me that 2020 in a city like Toronto, that this stuff is still happening. And I don't think the administration really has, A, the tools on how to deal with it, but they don't, actually don't understand the problem clearly. And I think part of that is because it would come to recognizing some flaws within themselves. right? The, the conversation for a white person around race is always uncomfortable. The conversation around race for a black person is probably the most comfortable it's going to be in a group of people, and then everyone else would kind of fall somewhere in the middle because we're some, at some point perpetrators and at some point victims. So when we talk about like, framing things as like, you know, this European civilization and this lens, I feel it alienates the people that we need to actually have this conversation with. Mm-hmm. How do we frame this in a way that is amenable, or do we just not worry about feelings and just be adults about this? How do we get through?
1: That's something that I used to grapple with a lot, because I work in a white majority newsroom for uh, basically white media. I used to grapple with that a lot uh, until, you know, let's talk about discomfort a little bit. And discomfort is such a privilege.
0: Sure. That in yeah.
1: that entire discussion on racism, the fact that it can only be in the realm of conversation for a white person, that's all it is. Abstract ideas, yeah. anthropological maybe, right? And of social interest, but no real meaning to their daily lived reality. So it's discomfort, because it suggests that somebody is saying, hey, you're a bad person. And so they want to be told, look, you're one of the nice ones, and I think you can understand what I say. And so I really need to convince you to come over to this side, because your voice is really powerful. Well, saying that is not going to change anything, because I I can get into that in a bit. But just, just to make my point about discomfort for white people and Whereas for indigenous people, black people, and the darker skin mm-hmm. among us, um, you know among brown people and, and the poorer among Asians sure. and yeah. all of us, it's about their right to exist as they are. it's about being killed for the skin they are in, mm-hmm. right It's about um, you know being allowed to express their culture that has been here for, for centuries before that white norm came into place. So it's not just an abstract conversation. It's about being allowed to live as you are for, right. you know, whether and, and now increasingly so for Muslims as well. So discomfort itself is such a privilege. And the mm. fact that we would then want to s- center this around that discomfort is a tacit acknowledgement of white power. Because in a, in a conversation between discomfort and a real threat to life. We're saying, let's not center it around the people who are threatened, but let's center it around the person who's feeling uncomfortable. And that itself is an acknowledgement of the power. Who holds the power? What are we catering to? Right, so if you're catering to- That is
0: so succinctly put.
1: So if you're catering to discomfort, then I have written columns that range in tone from you know, really gentle, I think, to really provocative. None of them changed anybody's minds. They don't change the minds of those whose minds are already made up. They don't change people whose minds are already made up. At best, anything you can do is to carry along somebody whose mind is already open. And you can, if we're all on that spectrum and continuum of understanding, you can move someone from here, point A to B, if they're open-minded but if they're not even at point a on that continuum you're not going to take them anywhere so if if they're the type of people who say we don't see color because we are so not racist mm, and we yeah, don't yeah. see color you're not going to take them anywhere if yeah. they try to misquote uh, martin luther king jr and tell you that you know even he said that i want to go by the um, i do not want to be character. just by the, you, know, yeah. you know not the color of your skin and that's not an entire quote it's a it's taken out of the context sure. where he's saying that he wanted his Children and his grandchildren to live in a world where they would not be judged for that. Right. You know, but, but he's not saying we are there at all. Right, right. And so if people are going to be in that state, then we can't, you know, there's no point trying to change them. Why don't we just focus on the people who, who want to learn, who want to move along? And there are. In the last four years of my doing this work, I have to tell you like my, the initial hate mail that I used to get is a lot reduced. You know so so I do uh, sometimes I wonder am I just more used to the hate mail now and I don't it doesn't really register or are people changing and I do think people are changing
0: uh, I'm an eternal optimist and yet also somewhat pragmatic I wonder if part of the conversation that's being missed here though there's no question that there is a eurocentric filter over the entire world, right? Everything in history, if you look back at the arc of history, is always looked at from that lens. World War I, World War II happened to be European wars with some fighting that happened in the colonies outside of Europe. Um, but most of it was happening and, in Europe. Japan. Yeah, yeah. And, and Japan. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it's, you know, most of the world's population was not involved in it, and yet it's considered the World War. If there was a war of that magnitude in some other region of the world, perhaps it wouldn't be referred to as such. Now, no question that there is this Eurocentric lens, but yet there's so many of us that are also, at one time, a minority facing some sort of discrimination, but then we're also. Uh, whether it's using white privilege or that particular model as the lens for it, but then we're perpetrating it on someone else. Yeah. Why can't we all just be a little bit more honest with even each other about that, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I am—I'm an able-bodied, uh, heterosexual male, yep. middle-income, living in the West, right? Yeah. I'm—I definitely have a lot of privilege. Lot I faced—I faced a lot of racist incidents growing up sure. and felt all that stuff, but honestly. I can't really complain about my life for the most part. Life has been good to me. This country has been good to me. I've benefited from a lot of the horrors that were perpetrated in the past. So I should feel comfortable saying, here's where I've screwed up, right? Here's where I can do better. In doing so, I wonder if that wouldn't help disarm uh, some of the discomfort. And I'm coming back to the discomfort only because I agree with you, you've completely opened uh, my eyes around, we're centering it around discomfort and not the issue. But we do need everybody to kind of Eventually, wake up to this, and I'm I'm wondering what the what is the vehicle to do that? Maybe if we're just more honest with each other, amongst ourselves and between ourselves, that would help.
1: Amongst ourselves, definitely. Uh, I find a lot of South Asians are, like, well, we're really racist. You know, why do we say this? White people are not all that bad. We're we're worse. We're far worse than white people and i think it may be true maybe as individuals we are horrible people i don't know like you know i know a lot of horrible yeah. south i know more <laughs> horrible south asian people than i know horrible white people I'll so that. you know yeah. so so but again and we can also be super critical about the people we know best because you know we we know them inside out mm-hmm. in a way that we might not know others but there's also a certain gaze a certain lens of innocence that is applied to certain uh, skin colors just, I'll, I'll stay, I'll keep it at that very superficial level of just skin color, sure. and there's a certain innocence that is attributed to certain skin colors, and there is a certain uh, threat uh, level attributed, and, and belligerence uh, attributed to other skin colors. So we are just as guilty of that. So much of this is internalized racism, right? And we have internalized at some point that white is aspirational. And so we are happy to have uh, some of us who are light-skinned are like, oh, that's that's venerated, and black is not where we want to be. And so we assure yourself that at least I'm not black. So you know that as Mm -hmm. long as you are not black, well, there's somebody worse off than you are. And that's the most corrosive place to Mm -hmm. be, because I believe that when we are anti-black, as we truly are, being anti-black for South Asians is an act of self-hate.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: Because we are saying in finding black skin, and again, I'm keeping it at the most superficial level of skin color. By superficial, I mean because it is, I'm talking about skin, but it, it has such deep impact that if we only look at skin color by saying that black skin is repulsive or bad or negative in some way, we are saying there is a part of us that acknowledges that if a white person looks at us with that same gaze, Mm -hmm. we understand. We understand why we are inferior. So if we are anti-black, we acknowledge our inferiority, and it is an act of self-hate.
0: My wife and I, we end up having conversations like this quite a lot, especially now that, and as they're kind of coming into this world, my daughter in particular, she's been very aware of race. Like everyone used to be peach colored in her drawings, and now there's all different shades no one could claim that she is colorblind, she sees color, it's just so far not a factor in how she sees people. But you know, as they kind of become more aware and they hear about conversations happening or hear about bullying or something happens in school and whatnot, like, as, as my wife and I are, are talking through this, and she moved to Canada when she was 16, you know, so for her there's the cultural adaptation, also seeing how different people in society stratify themselves. And we have very mixed groups of friends, right, from all walks of life, all backgrounds, gay, straight, black, white, every shade conceivably in between, with all sorts of lifestyles. And we just love the people that we know for the people that they are. And when my wife and I have seen some of these things happen with some of our friends, right in front of our eyes, seriously, we're still there? Like, we haven't moved past this yet? How is the world not beyond this? And I'm curious from your perspective, with children, we don't want to create unhealthy biases. We want to be able to nurture as open a mind as possible, but they're going to go about internalizing the world. As a mother, how are you navigating through that?
1: I, I find it very, very challenging. I have two children, one 11 and one nine. They're mixed, they're mixed brown and white. And my 11 year old, thinks of himself as an Indian. I don't know why. Is you know, he only has goes to India on holidays, but he identifies as Indian and my nine-year-old thinks of herself as white. And again, I don't know why. Both of them look some indeterminate shade of brown. And <laughs> you know, so and I worry about my child who thinks she's white, who hasn't realized that she's not, because as a mixed race child, she doesn't actually have that choice. She is because she, she's not blonde and blue-eyed, she is going to always be seen as tainted. It's the same reason Barack Obama is called a black president.
0: Mm-hmm. You yeah. know,
1: nobody could go around calling him a white president. You couldn't, like, you know, because yeah. even if he might have, in, in, on the inside, he could have been as white as, you, as, as sure. um, yeah. Bill Clinton, right? Or, or he was as white as Reagan in many ways, but you couldn't call him a white president, even if he had, had he so wanted. Now he chose, at some point, he says he chose to identify as black. And again, he doesn't realize the privilege it takes to say he chose it. You know, it, it's not a choice. It is foisted. If you are tainted by a non-whiteness non-white, uh, white in you, you're tainted. So I worry about my child who thinks she's white because at some point she's going to realize she's not. And in fact, uh, she goes to a fairly white school and in the conversation, another friend of hers said to her, I'm sorry to, sorry to tell you this, but you're considered a black person. And so she told me this and I said, so what did you say? Hmm. How did you respond? She said, I told her, why is that offensive? And I said, that's the right, right, uh, right answer because you know, why is it offensive? So say you were considered a black person, why would that be offensive at all? And I said, yeah, that, that was the right answer. And so, you know, we talk a lot about race obviously in my house and I, I see different levels. I see some fragility. I see my kids saying, are you saying dad is a b- bad person? And I'm saying, nope. And then he jumps in,
0: right. it's
1: very important. He jumps yeah. in and he said, no, you know, she's good with me. I'm good with her. We are, but we are talking about how the world perceives you. And then sometimes the, f- my fear is that they might, the takeaway they can get because they're children is that it's, you're better off being white than being black. And I have to tell them, you're right. You are better off in this day and age, being white than being black. But it doesn't mean being black is somehow inferior or less desirable.
0: Right. It's funny, the, the things that kids notice and uh, how they enter their mental space, that one child would tell your daughter, you know, you know I'm sorry to tell you, but you know, you're black yeah. or you'd be seen as black. First of all, that means she, that child believes she's yeah. bestowing bad news, yeah. right? Yeah. And that bad news is associated with, with color. Yeah. And on top of that, her only concept of race is black and white at that point. Like, there's no other shade in there. She didn't say, you're brown, you're beige, you're like Latino. She didn't say any of that, right? So, already for that child, race has been reduced to a black and white construct, and there's already a better and worse. And, you know, we see that sort of thing happen with kids all the time. There's a good friend of mine in New York. You know, shout outs to Spitz, he writes for Medium, and his children are half Korean, he's a Hungarian Jew. His sons are older, and in a random conversation that they were having, they're very open with each other, he's like, come on dad, you know life would be better as, as a white person, right? It's just better for white people. It is Because they look East Asian, yeah. right? They definitely don't look white. So he kind of shared his, his experience, that was the first time he realized how different his sons see the world than he does and how differently the, his sons believe the world see them than they see him. And so like, no matter what we do, whether we talk about it with our kids or not, this message is getting to them.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And we're better off talking about it right. than shutting them down. Because then the hope is, if you're able to change the curriculum in school, if they're able to see not just indigeneity, but you know, black history, which you know, the first black person came here in the 1600s, mm-hmm. and we've had some black history, is Canadian history. And if they learned all of that, if we learned geometry through the uh, Arabic um, scientists who contributed to algebra, which is why it's called algebra, or to Pythagoras, uh, you know, or to understand where zero and one comes from, whether it's China or India or whoever wants to claim it. If we we had a more inclusive Mm worldview, then the children would start to see themselves as role models. Then they would start to see, you know, they would start to see people like them in role model positions. Then they would stop thinking about, oh, is it not just better to be white? Because they're not seeing themselves. They're not seeing themselves in schools. They're not seeing themselves in YouTube videos. They're not seeing, you know, they're not seeing seeing themselves reflected at all. And I can tell you this, that as uh, somebody who grew up in India, and I read a lot of British um, novels, because that's all we had when I was a child, I would read all those you know, really racist Enid Blyton books, but I would read them identifying with the white person because I had myself an oppressor identity in India as a Brahmin mm-hmm. of relative privilege, right? And so I, I but, but I also saw them as foreign. Like I, so I didn't feel inferior to those right. white people that I was reading right. about because they seemed like, okay, it's a foreign country, foreign story happening in a foreign land. Meanwhile, in my own world, the teachers were upper caste. You know, they spoke languages like I did. Uh, the servants, on the other hand, the people whom we hardly even considered human half the time, we didn't even think about them. Mm-hmm. It's not that anybody went out of their way to consider them not human. You just didn't consider them at all, which is right. which is uh, even worse, um, in a way, injustice to inflict on another human being is to just invisibilize them, right? Yeah,
0: deny and their existence. Just deny yeah. that
1: they have the same rights and feelings and everything as you do, and just not even look at them. And then I also had a history of like you know, my my parents, my grandparents, they're educated. This is the old, you know, family history and Shivaji and blah. So there is a whole sense of pride that comes into every child Mm -hmm. if you have that in your if you have role models either in your history or in your school curriculum, as we did. And so now I feel really bad that my children are growing up in a place where they don't have that first-hand sense of pride you know my, my son's fine he seems to be okay but with my daughter i'm i'm and i, I apologize to her when i hear some of the racial comments then i said i'm sorry that you're i'm raising you in a place where you're you feel you are inadequate as you are mm-hmm. because i know unfortunately being an oppre you know an oppressor identity in another country but i know the kind of confidence that that instills in you, which I think children of immigrants born here simply don't know. Right. And I don't know how second and third generation immigrants here, where will they find the strength to push back if you've never known what it is like to be perfectly valued for who you are?
0: I find with families I've met, folks who've come in from Africa or the West Indies, you know, black families, or what you would have seen with the Windrush generation in the UK, because essentially everyone who was in a former colony was essentially a British citizen, so they flocked to the UK expecting to be you know, kind of treated with open arms. Where people have been in a place where they haven't had to spend so much time thinking about race and oppression and all this, and then you come here and then you're facing it for the first time you're facing it in your adult life, you don't know what that experience is like as a child. So you don't really know what to bestow on them. Yeah. You know, when my parents came here, my, my dad used to get called the N-word on a regular basis when he was working in, in Northern Alberta. You know, so he faced a fair bit of racism. By the time my brother and I are born and the time that we grew up through, he couldn't relate with those experiences yeah. firsthand. But I think they did their level best to give yeah. us a strong a foundation of pride and culture and everything. And I'm, I'm very thankful for that today. At the same time, you kind of mentioned it about seeing you know, representation in books, and this is something that's come up a lot. My wife and I talk a lot about this, is kind of near and dear for for her as well. Less so with adults, but I think with kids, it's important to be able to open a book and see a kid who's got a black face, or a kid who is in a wheelchair, or a kid that's got like two dads, or whatever it might be. And that's not just to instill pride in the black kid, that there's a story about this you know, young, girl who becomes an astronaut and flies to Mars, but also for all the other white kids who have to be able to see other people as just other people. I don't know if anyone's ever done this experiment. I would love to see a sociology experiment happen where you had a shelf or a wall full of books, and all of those books were just black characters on the covers, and just have you know a control group of a whole bunch of white families perusing through those, see what their reaction would be to that. Versus a whole bunch of black families rolling through the status quo, which is just white characters in the books It would be an uncomfortable place to be I imagine But that's a place that they need to happen especially early on with kids because kids just need to be able to see each other as human beings Right we can start there at least. Yeah kids need to
1: see each other as human beings and they do but very very quickly Mm -hmm. very very early they learn biases yeah. because we inherit those biases mm-hmm. right we know this from the hindu muslim relationships we yeah. all inherit those biases we know this through racial relationships we know this in the caste system and you know as early as kindergarten somebody told my uh, and again it was my daughter bizarrely that you know oh i don't know um, i don't like to hug brown people because brown people are dirty and again, when you raise it with the teachers, they just think it's a one-off thing that has to gen, then, oh, let's just have a chat about how we're all human beings. But no, it has to be yeah. a much bigger, you know, you need to look at what are you representing in your class? How are all the cultures of your students represented in the class? How are you making sure that their languages that they speak at home are valued in your classroom,
0: yeah. right?
1: Rather than making them feel that that's something separate and that maybe they shouldn't even be speaking that backward language
0: that they come from. This, um, as an example, and I want to pivot away from race uh, because I don't think we're going to solve it (laughs) today. There's no solving. Yeah, it's just uh, a journey, right? But just as an example, I find I've heard a lot of people, I'm I'm surprised, quite frankly, that kids are so freely still using the N-word between themselves and with other black kids and stuff. Often, the very first response I usually hear, not just from white people, but from everyone who's not black. Basically, The first response I'll hear is, well, it's all over their music. They're constantly saying it. It's constantly in hip-hop. It's in rap. Why do they keep saying it if, and selling us this music if they don't want to hear it? Okay, how much time do you actually have? Because if you actually think about, in just that one n- very narrow topic of why does the N-word still get used in popular culture, if you actually look at the history of that word, you'll realize it's probably the most violent word in contemporary English language, for starters. And B, if you look at the music industry, you look at where rock, hip-hop, jazz, blues, country, every popular American form of music basically emerged from black America and black artists. And so they've been creating music all this while. Hip-hop emerges in Brooklyn in the 70s, you know, under state defunding of schools and all of this. So people start making music. Some of it's just fun and some of it's political. Some of it's got a message. But the moment that the corporatocracy realizes there's money to be made here, it begins to co-opt and say, now this is an industry. But now, if you're an artist, um, granted a lot of of black people will be using that word with each other, and I have my misgivings, but I don't know that I have that much of a business having that conversation. But if you want to make it in the music scene, in hip hop, as a black artist, likely that's going to be around selling sex, drugs, sneakers, cars, liquor, glamorizing a violent lifestyle or money or whatnot, And it will be using that word over and over. And so if you're the record label exec, you're likely not a black man with a few exceptions, you are looking at what sells. That's the narrative that sells because that's the narrative that white suburban America wants to buy. And so only the artists that are willing to make that sacrifice and use that word or the ones that don't care because they don't have a greater social cause, they're just actually trying to get out of poverty or move on with their careers, they're the ones using it. So you have to go into that entire diatribe to explain this is why it's in the music. It's not by accident, right? There is a broader lens that's, you know, Corporate white America selling to suburban white America this story, right. and if you don't play by those rules, with some exceptions, you're not going to make it. Absolutely. So, but people need to take the time to even hear that.
1: I'm going to tie this to what you said earlier about, you know, how do we have these conversations and around discomfort? And so now, imagine you've told me this. And I'm like, oh, I think I get it. Maybe I don't, maybe, you know, depending on where I am in my journey of understanding. But then, so maybe I'll get it, and then I'll I'll move on to the next thing in my life. You might need to tell me this five times. Now you're gonna have to tell this to somebody else five times, and then somebody else. And I'm not engaging at all. And at some point, you're gonna turn around and when people are telling you you know anuj why are you getting so angry when you're talking about this music and this n-word why is your tone so you know yeah and yeah you're like but i've said it 300 times and i've said the same basic thing 300 times yeah. and they're like but you know that person's really uncomfortable every time you speak about this um, anuj so you need to be able to explain to that person at some point you're going to turn around to people like me and say hey but why aren't you talking to more people among yourselves Mm -hmm. So that you can then take that conversation, if you're ahead in this understanding, then you can start exploring and expanding even further to see where knowledge can take you. Or should you always just be stuck at level one, where Mm. you're explaining to people that this is what, you know, this is the thing, problem with the N-word, this is how capitalism works. The people behind the scene are not the people who are necessarily making the music. The people behind the scenes have completely different imperatives. How often, you can say this 100 times, 300 times, mm-hmm. 400 years, you know, maybe not, right? And so yeah. at some point then that patience is not a virtue anymore. At some point you have to acknowledge that people don't really want to know. They don't really care. Right. They just want to use that as an excuse. And so when, when we talk about intellectual laziness, I think, to a certain extent, laziness, you can blame it on that, but to a certain extent, there is then just bias and, and uh, unwillingness to do that hard work of reflection.
0: Mm-hmm. Because
1: you can tell me 10 times, give me all the facts 10 times about who's behind the scenes and who's in the front, but if I'm not willing to go there and I want to, I want to tell you how black people are wrong, no factual data is going to change my mind on that yeah
0: yeah
1: and you can't and so you just have to let me go and work with whoever is willing to work with you and then see where you can push that envelope
0: right
1: so that's that's because i I don't have anything really to add to what you said about the n-word in music that that was perfect but but i would want to yeah no i agree conversation
0: i agree and and so speaking of facts it feels like the world is polarized right now By many measures, I think this is the best time ever in human history. If you look at life expectancy, infant mortality, peace, prosperity, you know, overall income levels, food security, all those things. This is, on many measures, this is the best time for the most number of people ever. But it still sucks a lot for a lot of people. And then we have between social media and this get their first news culture, we're constantly just trying to get to that next 15 second thing as quickly as possible to keep up ratings, to keep up clicks. What is the responsibility of the media in today's date? Is it any different than it ever was? Is it harder today to be in the media, to be a journalist, to be pursuing truth over Clicks. Like, how has that changed, in your view?
1: I think the polarizing is coming because people are being held accountable, and they're not used to it. People in power have never been truly held accountable. So, if I was a newspaper editor-in-chief, um, say in Toronto, um, 15 years ago, I might have, uh, you know, I might write, I might have a reporter who's written really contemptuously about an Indian Hindu person. And all the Indian Hindus are really upset about it. And they'll write a letter. Well, you know, I might be like, eh, man, who cares? And unless there's a protest at the bottom of the building, I'm not really going to care about it. But today, you're going to have angry Hindus, if assuming it was justified, because sure, yeah. I'm loath <laughs> to use Hindus as an example of being- uh, Yeah, At you know, this moment at in this time. At this moment yeah. in time, yeah, but, but just as an example then they're going, there's going to be a lot of accountability pieces on social media which will make it impossible for me as the editor to ignore because now we're talking it's, it's visible it's in my face there are these really angry people mm. and they're making really legitimate points and so now either i'm uncomfortable and i lash out I add to the polarization or I'm petrified of being seen as racist, and then I just do whatever it takes. I'll write about Diwali the next time, which is, again, a meaningless sort of yeah, you yeah. Know, a patronizing thing to do. But so I think a lot of the polarizing is happening because voices that have people who've always been speaking out but didn't have a platform now have a platform. I know there's a lot of negativity to social media in terms of um, fake news in terms of you know the ecosystems of Facebook and Twitter yeah. but thankfully there's a mute button I use that a lot and I only see it as a um, as as a place where voices that have been traditionally unheard find right. a platform so of course there's a polarization and that's a good thing you know that sort of a, a disruption to the status quo because we can no longer pretend that, really speaking, we are fine. We we are not a racist nation right. at all. And uh, once in a way, sure, which society is you know which society is bad, which society is not bad, which yeah. society does not have uh, these hierarchies. But hey, we are the best, and I can say, yeah, maybe we still are one of the best countries in the world. Maybe we still are one of the most stable countries in the world. I'd rather today, I'd rather be here than anywhere yeah. else in the world. And I think we all acknowledge that. But we can't begin every conversation by saying, <laughs> hey, we are actually one of the best places, but yeah. guess what? And even people like us who can say that, hey, maybe we are one of the best places. It's because we have enough privilege that our day-to-day living
0: mm-hmm. is
1: not impacted by our identity. Right. But I put a scarf on right now and walk out of this. My I, My walk to Union Station is going to be changed based right. on how i'm perceived mm-hmm. even with the same skin color the same everything just a scarf will change things.
0: so what, what you're it sounds like what you're saying is we're not necessarily more polarized than ever it's just more obvious now because of the accountability and the voices in the room it's
1: becoming more uh unavoidable right and i think if we have to change we have to go through that discomfort
0: when we look at this kind of conversation around, we, we believe, you know, whether it's in the US, it's the greatest country ever, Canada thinks it's great for because it's not the US right now, or uh, hey, what about Denmark? Just because we do things well, we should be able to celebrate our accomplishments. Like, there is a lot to love about, uh, in my opinion at least, there is uh, an incredible number of things to love about the American experiment or the Canadian experiment, but If this is the best that we can do, then that's still very sad, right? We still all have so far to go, and so I I think that these conversations are really critical to make sure that that continues to happen. Before we wrap up, I'm curious to know from your perspective, there's a lot of crazy stuff that's happening in the world, but what are you most excited about? Like, What inspires you the most? You you think about your kids at, at your age and what the world would be like. Like, what are, what are you excited about that you feel hopeful and energized by?
1: The fight. I'm very, mm. very energized by um, what, you know, the fight being led by uh, black Canadians and um, various First Nations, Métis Inuit people. I'm, I'm loving that we are all talking about the Wet'suwet'en Nation, we're talking about hereditary chiefs and band councils and the Indian Act and trying to understand who, you know, who does what, I am so happy. This is something that without that fight, none of this would have even come into our consciousness. So the resistance is what inspires mm. me.
0: That is such a, a almost counterintuitive, the utopia, whatever theoretical utopia exists at some thousands of years in the future, like, but you're actually just excited about the hustle, the, the struggle, the, you know, the rebellion.
1: As it were. I think that that stands for that resilience, it stands for spirit mm-hmm. and we're seeing droves of it in the most uh, oppressed of people who are saying, we're not, going to, you know, we're not going to let this continue to happen. And no matter what, centuries of being put down, they're here, they're here, they're fighting and they're here to say, you guys can just uh, F off. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. we're here. Yeah. Shree, thank you so much. This has been amazing. There's so many more things I'd, I'd love to talk to you about. Maybe at some point in the future, we can we can do this again. Thank you for just inspiring, just showing up in Canada and rolling up your sleeves and you know getting into the fight because we need this. Like we need, especially women with strong convictions coming out and saying this because it's not. It doesn't just benefit women and young girls and black girls and Indian girls. It benefits everybody when someone like you with your convictions, but also your calculated view of the world when you just voice it. So, I mean, it's, it's a public service and I, I appreciate it. And I, I always look forward to kind of hearing what you have to say about whatever's happening in the world.
1: No, oh, that's too kind, too kind. I just hope, you know, I just hope that generations of journalists who come after me, who are coming after me, don't feel that they need to, they shouldn't have to fight. Mm. But if they're fighting, I'm here for it.
0: And before we wrap up, uh, where can people find out more about you?
1: Uh, Twitter, at Shri Paradkar. Okay, and that's probably all the right. I'll put the yeah. I'll put the
0: links on the site. But uh, Shri, this has been a, a pleasure. Hopefully, we do this again soon. Thank you so much.
1: No, oh, I appreciate it, and thank you for having me. All right,
0: that's a wrap. Okay. If you've listened till this point in the podcast, I can assume only one or two things. One, you really dig this podcast. You just love it, and you can't get enough. Or two, you started the podcast, you got busy with something else, or bored, you forgot about it, and it just kept playing on your phone, or was playing over your speakers in your room, you left the room, and right now I'm just talking to nobody. But if you're one of the former, and you're really loving this podcast, please help spread the word. There's a lot of ways that you can help support the podcast and what we're doing here with these conversations. Of course, you can subscribe to us on any podcast app or platform of choice. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, we're also on the incredible Ruckus Avenue Radio online station. If you really like what you're hearing, please help spread the word, there's a lot of ways you can do that. Definitely hit us up on Apple Podcasts, leave a review and a rating. You can also engage with us and suggest ideas for new guests and topics and conversations all over social media, on Instagram at Awoken Word Podcast, and on Twitter and YouTube and Facebook, we're at Awoken Word. If you like what you're hearing share it on social media. Feel free to bring up any of the conversations or topics we've talked about here in your own podcasts or your own conversations. So until next time, be well, be safe, and I'll see you again on Awoken Word. Peace out.